the Sacramento um, sewage was really not good. And the blink of an eye, everything went wrong. They realized that there was a car following them. Because you have to go to class because you're a serving college student. We are just going to jump right into it. Hello, friends. My name is Haley, and I am joined with Gianna, the co-host. And I've got a fucking story for you today. I'm excited. This one's we've been long awaiting. Yes. Actually sitting down because of our busy schedule. Yes. Yeah. This one is 34 pages long. 40. 34. 34. 34. 34 pages long. And if you're wondering why the fuck I still sound sick, it's because I am still sick. A month into pottying. <laughs> so here we go. We're going to jump into it. Once again, I'm not going to tell you what we're doing, so it's going to be a surprise. Yep. Ready? Ready. Okay. It's December of 1966. Okay. Residents of Cincinnati were in a panic. Over the course of more than a year, a killer terrorized the city. December 2nd of 1965 marked the first of what would be seven murders to which of mostly elderly vi- like women were the victims of. Oh my gosh, this is in our hometown. Hometown, home skillet. Oh my gosh. Yes, so someone was running around Cincinnati. Marking people. Marking mostly elderly women. Yeah. Okay? The city had faced the first attack months earlier on October 12th when a 65-year-old woman was beaten and raped. Okay, which just... Yeah. Yeah, it's not a good picture. No, that's not a good look. So, her attacker attempted to strangle her to death with a plastic clothesline, but thankfully was unsuccessful. Emma Jean Harrington, however, was not so lucky. And on December 2nd, she was found murdered in a basement of her apartment building with a plastic clothesline around her neck. Oh my gosh. Yes. Emma Jean would be the first murder victim of what would plague Cincinnati as the Cincinnati Strangler. Oh my gosh. Yes. Until the Cincinnati Strangler. Yes, the Cincinnati Strangler until December 9th of 1966. Okay. Yeah, so once again, we've got to get all of the iconic cases out of the way. This is a long one. It's a doozy. But you, we had mentioned before, you had never heard of it. No. I had read about it, yeah. um, but it's just so close to home, and it's actual history. Yeah. So here we go. I'm excited. This is this is our home. Yes, yes. And, like, on some of these locations I'll touch on, I will tell you how close they are to this okay. house, to this apartment right now. Okay. Around noon of October 12th, 1965, 65-year-old Elizabeth Creco was leaving her apartment in Walnut Hills when a guy she later described as a short black man approached her and asked her if she could show him the caretaker of the apartment complex, to which she was like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. She guided him down to the basement where this random guy suddenly dragged her into the bathroom where he sexually assaulted her and choked her until she was unconscious. Elizabeth was found barely alive with a double-knotted piece of clothesline around her neck. Yeah. Nine days later, two more women of the Walnut Hills area were attacked, but the descriptions of the attackers, other than them being African-American, were different. Like, they were different heights, and, like, I think they had, like, different like facial hair or something Mm -hmm. for the time. There was something pretty, two pretty distinct distinct things that did not connect them. Mm -hmm. 
So again, on December 2nd, 56-year-old Emma Jean Harrington returned with groceries to her Claremont apartment complex in East Walnut Hills. Miss Harrington was the wife of a scientist at the University of Cincinnati whom she lived, you know, just a regular life with. Miss Harrington locked her car and was seen looking through the building's janitor who helped her carry her bags up the stairs to their apartment on the second floor. So around 1.20, the elderly custodian discovered her body in the restroom of the dimly lit basement. Oh. Basements. 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 Everyone has a thing with basements. I'm not sure what it is. They're creepy, okay? What is it about a basement that makes people want to keep bodies down there? Dark, dank, disgusting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Emma Jean had been strangled with a section of plastic cord that was still hanging around her neck when she was found. Oh her clothing gosh. was ripped, she was beaten, and she was raped. Ew, I'm so cursed out. Me too, me too. The cord was double-knotted at each end, just like the Elizabeth Craker rape, and Sergeant Russell Jackson at this point was convinced that the two crimes were done by the same person. Mm. Dozens of sex offenders in the area were questioned and concerns to their whereabouts that day, but ultimately, as winter grew near, the killer's trail grew grew cold. Grew cold. Nobody had any idea even where to start looking other than sex offenders. Where else do you go? Right. It was not long before the killer struck again. April 4th, 1966, Frank Dant was returning to his apartment on Rutledge Avenue in Price Hill. And this is an 18-minute drive from my house. Oh, my gosh. So, pretty close. Yeah. So, Frank would help count the Sunday church collection from the day before. And he would promptly return home to his apartment that he shared with his wife. And this was the only time that she was ever left at home by herself. Okay. So at 10.40, Frank entered their apartment, and he stumbled over the battered body of his wife. Miss Lois Dan was found strangled with her own stockings. Oh, my gosh. Yes. In her own fucking house. That's horrible. Absolutely horrible. With her stockings. Yes. Her house coat had been ripped and her underwear torn off. Ew, 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 yes. ew, 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 he could have literally like passed him. Like, body was warm and everything. Pretty fucking much. Oh he could God. have, like, driven past him on his way home or walked past him or however the fuck he got there. Ew. Just before her murder, Lois had been talking on the phone with her cousin. The cousin had recalled that during their conversation, it was interrupted by the dance front doorbell. Lois put down the phone, and when she came back, she informed her cousin that it was just some man looking for the caretaker. A minute or so later, Lois again said that the door was ringing and told her cousin that she would just call her back later, thinking that it may have been the same man at the door, and she didn't really express any anxiety, and as she said goodbye and hung up the phone, she was just like, okay, talk to you later, cuz. What the heck? Yeah. She didn't... I would have been like, stay on the phone, the guy's still here again. Exactly. I would be like, er, eat, er, eat, er, eat. Sometime before 11 a.m., an upstairs neighbor overheard a man's voice from the apartment below. Um, That neighbor was later quoted saying, I heard a startled cry or an excited yell. I can't describe it. I heard a door slam. I looked down the stairs but saw nothing. The local police questioned several suspects and the FBI had confirmed the killer's blood type as O, but that's pretty much all they had at this point. Some detectives hesitated to connect this crime to the Harrington murder because of 
a few reasons. First, Price Hill was a primarily white neighborhood, which I mean, I guess was still a thing during right, the sixties. Right, match up. R- right, which I mean, I'm not good. I I don't know anything about that, so I guess it was still a thing. Um, and therefore, the men are perhaps the men who were profiled terrifying the Walnut Hills area could have been theoretically sulking around in the day, and I mean people would notice that right. and they would say something to investigators. Yeah. So secondly, if someone of a different ethnicity came to her door, reports say that Lois would have mentioned it to her cousin on the phone during their conversation. Oh. So we it don't was a white person. So it, it could have been, I mean, in the fluke chance that maybe she wasn't I don't know, didn't think about that stuff yeah, like they, us? I don't know. In the, during this time they did. They probably did. So yeah. you that's I'm assuming that's probably why they're like a she would have point. she would have said something to her cousin. So there's that. Within weeks of the initial in interviews, the investigation stalled. Before they knew it, the Cincinnati area was again home to another gruesome, senseless murder. Just before sunrise on June 10th, a man who was walking his dog in Clifton's Burnett Woods discovered a badly beaten body of a woman. Her clothes were torn off and a yellow necktie was found knotted around her throat. Oh my god. Burnett Woods. Once again, really close to my house. And, oh my god, could you imagine? No. Ugh. Even worse, a small terrier, okay, a small terrier dog had been tied to a tree nearby. Oh, no, it was her dog. It was her fucking, it was, it was her fucking dog. Although this was horrible and so sad, the tags on this tiny dog led to the verification of his now deceased owner. And his owner was 56-year-old widow known as Jeanette Messer of nearby Jefferson Avenue. Which is really close to my house. Like, if you go down here and you turn right, like, right past like the Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. Ugh, I love that Dunkin's. Um it's you like go right there. there. A lot? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they love Pucha. They give her like giant cups of cream. We don't even have to ask for it. Wait, is it if you go, turn right or left out of here? Right. If you go right and keep oh. going down MLK and then you turn right and keep going. Oh jeez. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Back to inquire interview with chief jacob shot that was headlined strangler catches widows strolling alone and during this interview jacob had said this guy is definitely the same man who raped and strangled the other two women and this man is a maniac which duh is duh you don't need to add two and two together yeah (laughs) no fucking shit The killer bludgeoned her, fracturing both cheekbones and several ribs. She was dragged off the trail, where she was then sexually assaulted and then later strangled. Oh my god. Yes. Obviously, the media was running with this story, and headlines surrounding the coverage were not written to give the city peace of mind, basically. They were saying things like fear-gripping women while strangler roams, and confirming Negro killed three women, even though... There's no fucking proof of that at all whatsoever. By late June, police had already followed up on more than 1,000 leads, and it paid off. Jake Schott finally put a face on the suspect. Oh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But don't get your hopes up. His men had confirmed that they did recover a negroid hair on both Harrington and Messer. So the inquirer was, of course, jumping to conclusions. Yeah. Schott admitted that there was absolutely no hair found on Lois Dant and reiterated that there was a serial killer on the loose. Oh, 
Jeez. Yeah. Some people are lying. People just are things. just like, yeehaw, jump to conclusions, rodeo. Rodeo. <laughs> exactly. As terror struck again the rainy summer night of August 14th, 1966. Young, beautiful 31-year-old secretary Barbara Bowman was leaving Clifton Lark's Cafe at around 2 a.m. Witnesses at the bar described a short Negro cab driver around 30 years old who picked her up. Barbara was near her Price Hill apartment when, in the blink of an eye, everything went wrong. She managed to get out of the cab, but it wasn't enough because the maniac behind the wheel accelerated, lurching the cab over the curb, and ran Barbara over. Oh my god. The taxi driver then got out of the cab and attacked Barbara with a knife. Wait, but she's young. She doesn't fit the profile Mm -hmm. for what he likes to kill. 31 years old. She was discovered minutes later dying in the gutter on the corner Mm -hmm. of Ring and Grand, just down the street from her home. She was stabbed a total of seven times in the neck with a paring knife, which was found next to her. Oh, my gosh. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're probably like, where the fuck is the cab? Well, the cab was found abandoned with a broken axle from its attempt at off-roading, and the police later did confirm that the taxi was stolen from some place called the Yellow Taxi Lot. Yeah, something. It was an actual, it was a stolen vehicle from an actual taxi Taxi thing. It wasn't just like a fake taxi thing going on, which is a thing. Yeah. When the taxi was located, Barbara's purse, glasses, high heels, and beads from her necklace that had broken were strewn inside of the car, or outside of the car. Yes. The Inquirer ate this shit up and said that these killers' methods were the most bizarre in city history. This fake-ass cab driver had taken eight fares before picking up Miss Bowen, responding with the call number 186 during the night on his radio. The Yellow Cab Company even furnished a tape where the suspect announced himself, and it was, he was clearly heard as saying 186. Mm-hmm. So at least they had his voice and a number. Yeah. Another lead that emerged came from an actual cab driver in Lower Price Hill shortly after the murder took place. The driver said that a drenched and breathless black man had jumped into the back seat of his car and demanded to be taken to the West End. This passenger scooted out of view of the rearview mirror and leaped out of the cab just before arriving to the destination that he requested to go to. Mm. So this guy remembered it like, huh, strange, but I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't call the police about that because that's fucking suspicious as shit. Super suspicious. Two composites of the Bowman suspect, which were, of course, cross-checked with a list of cab drivers, even remotely resembling a 5-foot, 8-inch, 25- to 30-year-old, 160-pound African-American male. So they knew who they wanted to target. They knew who they were looking for, or so they thought. thought. Yeah, so the black community was really looked into, and this called for an outcry from civil rights groups, and they argued against the Roundup mentality. Their protests were pushed aside as the anxiety rose in white neighborhoods, mm-hmm. which, I mean, completely understandable, but, yeah, things were really, really tense during that time, obviously. Right. It's very interesting that they are profiling for an African-American male when the Mindhunter app, like, would they really emphasize that killers really target someone out of their ethnicity, like, ethnicity, right? But all, most of these suspect, like most of these victims, have been white. So I don't know, like how they suddenly, you know what I'm saying? That's how they suddenly know that he's 
black. Right, right, right. Somewhat of color. So there's that going on. As leads dwindled, detectives on the case could not agree on whether or not the Bowman slang was actually related to the previous attack. So like you said, she was 31 years old, much younger than the other victims, mainly due to the fact that ligature marks were present on her neck, but there were no signs of sexual assault and, like I said, much younger than the other victims. Right. you know, in my mind, is there a possibility that he couldn't, like, act out his entire plan for some reason? Like, was someone coming along, or was this just a copycat? Right. And he was like, oh, shit, strangling someone is a lot harder than I thought. I'm just going to run. And just gave up. Right, right. So, so to go along with the copycat theory, criminals seem to be living under the facade of, like, an unknown attacker, in my opinion. Because, like, in September, in Walnut Hills, a woman by the name of Virginia Henners, who was 40 years old, was intervened by a young black man in the office building of the New Thought Unity Center um, who was looking for work. Okay? okay. This guy comes in, I guess. I forget what I Just wrote. wondering if he can have some sort of work. Yes. So the stranger grabbed her and proceeded to throw her around the room while apparently whispering, Do you want what the others got? Ew. Yes. Thankfully, an elderly janitor intervened and the attacker knocked him unconscious, then slugged Henners, robbed her purse of the $28 she had in it before running out of the door. Oh. Yes. He left behind evidence. I guess. The Unity Center where this attack took place is located across the street from the scene of the Emma Jean Harrington slaying that took place in December of 1965, mm. which, like I said, is now considered the first victim of what would be the series of murders that would dub the psycho as the Cincinnati Strangler. And not to mention the slaughter of the Bricka family that had happened during the same time. Like, we talked about, I think, whatever episode it was. So, Cincinnati was already on edge, and, like, these things are simultaneously going on. Like, people were fucked up, okay? And things didn't get any easier. October 11th, 1966 was any other Tuesday for 51-year-old Alice Hotchlasser. Hausler. Alice (laughs) Hotchlasser. Hot puff off. Hot puff. Hot houseler. Yeah, hot houseler. Hot houseler. Alice was wife to Dr. Carl Hauschlauser, whom she met while attending nursing school. I cannot say it, okay? <laughs> Do I look like I can say that? No, I can't. <laughs> and it's because I don't have a puff on my microphone. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so she met her husband while she was attending nursing school, and she was a mother to nine fucking children. She's a brave woman. It's called wrapping it. She didn't know. She did not it's have called access. the morning after. She did not have access to it. Hello. Her second oldest daughter, Beth, worked as a nurse at the Good Samaritan Hospital that her father was the head surgeon at. Alice returned to her home in Clifton's Gaslight District at 9 p.m. following a PTA meeting she had attended. When she got home, she changed into her night clothes while her husband sat in his recliner, like just the stereotypical dad and watch TV. Like I literally just thought of my Joe sitting in a flannel, just like popcorn chunks all and all across, like all over everything, all over the floor. Did you also know, side note, you know how we were horrible and we always fed the cat ice cream? Mm -hmm. Joe kept that up. Now, when the cat gets, like, when he's done eating ice cream, the cat will hop up on the ottoman, and he will let him lick the fucking spoon. I'm not even kidding. My dad is such a softie. Oh, remember when we got them? Like, wait, 
we like found them on the side of the road or whatever like he would always get so upset when he brought and new animals home yes and now he's like he's like a okay little fucking softy yeah. let's just think and he's like Ugh, what a dumbass okay anyway like many women of cincinnati during the time she was concerned about the maniac on the loose so as a result she would go in pick up her daughter beth from work at the hospital and drop her off at her apartment on ludlow avenue which is legit a mile from my house and she would go and do that because beth worked the night shift so she didn't want her walking at home by herself yeah. or taking Makes the sense. bus or you know just getting Whatever. getting generally marked generally. yes alice had a habit of not even leaving the car so most nights she would put a rope over her nightgown before heading out like she go out in her slippies right. got her nightgown she's not dressed to impress yeah Mm -hmm. This night was no different, so Alice pulled over her robe and left her house just after 11 p.m. Alice picked up her daughter in her 1964 Mercury station wagon at about 11.30 and began to drive to Beth's apartment. It was when they were en route to Beth's apartment that they realized that there was a car following them. Yes, yes. What's even more eerie is when the ladies parked on the corner of Ludlow Avenue in Cornell, just across the street from Beth's apartment, the car pulled alongside the curb behind them just before coming to, like, a complete stop behind them. Fucking gross. It, completely gross. So creepy. And at this point, like, it was so clear. At this point, Alice was like, what does this guy want? And she was, like, even talked about it to Beth. She was like, what do you suppose? Oh, she said to her daughter, do you suppose he's going to go around me? Because it was just so freaking random. Mm. The woman looked in the rearview mirror to see that it was a young, single African-American man in a brown and tan Chevy. Okay. So, a two-tone Chevrolet. Beth said farewell to her mother before crossing the street to her building. When she reached the other side of the street, she turned and waved a final goodbye, and she saw the two-toned car pull around her mother's car before driving away. At 11.50, Alice turned up Cornell and into her driveway minutes later, parking the station wagon outside of the brick and stone garage behind her house while her husband and seven children slept inside. Seven children! Again. What's up with all these people, like, not knowing yet? Just put a little saran wrap on that shit. What saran wrap? What? A condom. Oh, with the seven children? I yes. don't know, but death Nine, don't. Nine, seven, like, jeez. Death, do not put saran wrap. Not, yeah, no. Do not do that. But. Yes, no, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> When she was walking down her driveway towards her stairs leading to the back door of the house, Alice could hear a party from a few doors down and the furious barking of her neighbor's dogs. Mm -hmm. And a vicious dog barking. Thank you for setting that scene. I love that. That was so good. Alice never made it to the stairs of her house before an assailant emerged from the shadows and delivered a crushing blow to the back of her head that sent her car keys and dentures flying halfway down the driveway. <laughs> not funny, not funny. Not, not the dentures! <laughs> oh my god. That's a blow. That's a fucking For the dentures to go flying? Halfway down have the driveway. Do... Oh my gosh. Like both, the top and the bottom? Or... I'm gonna say yes. Do you have any details? Like, she's Fuck like, no, like... I don't know. <laughs> That's a fucking blow. Her attacker then dragged her by her ankles into the garage before he raped her and strangled her with the belt from her very own bathrobe. 
Well, now we're back on brand. We are. Good for him. <sighs> Motherfucker. When her husband awoke the next day without Alice in bed, he assumed she was in the basement, and only after searching the laundry room did Carl look out the window and see her car parked near the garage. So he was like, all right, she's around the house somewhere. She didn't go anywhere. When Carl went outside, he saw Alice's shoe laying in the driveway without and he would wearing it, and dread immediately washed over him. As he turned the corner, he discovered the deceased body of his wife. After checking her vitals for any any glimmer of hope that she might be alive and feeling no pulse, Carl stumbled back inside the house and called the police, and then after he called the police, he called a priest to administer the last rites. That's sad. That's so sad. Now nine children are without a fucking mother that is so crazy that's so heartbreaking when carl phoned the police he reported his wife's death as a possible suicide because he noticed a piece of rope hanging from a rafter over his wife's body but the first patrol man to arrive on the scene immediately contacted the homicide squad Detectives decided quickly that the killer had parked on Evans Wood and then slipped through the thick bushes and ambushed Alice as she left her car. Why? Because they were like disturbed. Wait, hold on. Why? Because there were disturbed branches or something? Well, because nobody had seen anything and there was a party going on not Uh, that far away, things like that. Obviously, everyone started pointing their fingers at the strangler, and they had a few reasons to actually do so this time. Aside from the obvious, first, what they called a Negro pubic hair was found on the victim's clothing. Secondly, a witness had observed an African-American walking with quick, jerky steps on Ludlow Avenue around 2.20 a.m. Oh, my God. Yeah, which would be after... One of the daughters arrived home from a babysitting job at around 11 p.m. and she didn't notice anybody on the street or any strange cars parked nearby. And I feel like that's also probably why they were like, hey, parked over here and then just kind of slipped around the block. You know what I'm saying? He was sneaky, sneaky. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That following Wednesday, the Cincinnati Council decided to increase efforts to end the panic and decided to place the entire police department on emergency call. This decision added over 100 officers to the forts on a contingency basis. Even though the Supreme Court had recently cracked down on the protection of rights of suspects, Detective Chief Jake Schott told his men that they need aggressive action to solve the case and told them that... Oh, he told them to bring in anybody that didn't, that I quote, okay, I quote, bring in anybody that don't give the right answers. A phone hotline was set up and operators at the station logged 800 calls on the first day. Mm -hmm. What? Yep, yep, yep. The most popular tip they received was in regards to the vintage two-tone Chevy. As a result, over 1,000 cars were checked into, but no matches were ever made. Mm-hmm. Yep, thinking that they were getting leads. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they did pretty good, I think, at following up on a lot of them. Yeah. Colonel Guy York, who was acting as police chief after Stanley Scrotel suddenly retired, was certain someone was harboring the strangler, and he was sure someone knew who the killer was, but whoever it was would not want to give them up out of love or fear. He said that no one ever does anything without someone knowing about it, which is very, very true. Um, but just like in the Pricka case, the demand for large watchdogs skyrocketed.
skyrocketed. Everyone bought locks and guns and enrolled in self-defense classes. And something that's kind of cool because we love Kroger's, the Kroger company gave away 100,000 whistles to female customers. But, I mean, because of that, clearly the entire fucking city was on lockdown and they were scared. Mm -hmm. So the city council decided that Halloween would take place during the daytime, which would be the first time in the city's recent memory that they decided to do this. Mm -hmm. So they were like, we cannot risk some mass psycho breaking into somebody's house and, you know, nobody would fucking know. Yeah. So, a woman by the name of Helen Musham, a neighbor of the Hauschausler, oh my god, a neighbor of Alice's family who lived on Evanswood, recalled seeing a stranger around 4.30 p.m. on the same day of Alice's murder. Okay. So, she remembered this because as she was parking her car, she felt like someone was watching her, and when she turned around, she noticed a man was actually watching her, and he greeted her with a bow, which actually pissed her off and revealed to her that the man wasn't from around that part of town so i guess she was a little um skept out yeah a little sketched so she then watched the man walk towards ludlow avenue and she noticed that the guy was short and he was wearing a beret which i mean she she (laughs) another instance of a man um who was walking his dog after dark um, around 8.30, he heard something in the bushes that bordered Alice's driveway. Was it a killer? Was it a possum? We don't fucking know. Oh because God. two hours later, a woman once straight over reported someone had tried opening her kitchen door and shined a flashlight in her window. Yeah. She did. Yeah, she fucking dead as shit. Actually, she lived. <laughs> so everybody in Cincinnati, it seemed like, had a story or a tip or a sighting or something to call into this tip line. Yeah. And on that note, I am going to leave you with a cliffhanger, and we are going to jump back into it next week and figure out who the fuck was in the bushes. 